Long History's Random UK Prime Minister of the Week, the first Prime Minister, Robert Walpole. The first and the best Prime Minister? He held office between the 3rd of April 1721 and the 11th of February 1742. Hello everyone and welcome to Long History's Random UK Prime Minister of the Week. This is the series where we literally randomly pick a Prime Minister and then ask a series of questions about that person. The questions include what were they like, what was the UK or Great Britain like at the time, how did this person get their job, what did they do in their job and how did they lose their job. And in this episode we've got perhaps not one of the most famous Prime Ministers but he's certainly one of the most significant. But we've now covered a few Prime Ministers so I'm sure they're available on your podcast provider. But the full set of Prime Ministers we've looked at so far can also be found on longhistory.net, our website, that's long history or one word. So here we go with Long History's random UK Prime Minister of the Week, the first Prime Minister, Robert Walpole. The first and the best Prime Minister? He was in the office from the 3rd of April 1721 to the 11th of February 1742. So we've already made a couple of contentious statements there. You might think it's easy to understand why we gave Walpole, in the name of this episode, the title of first Prime Minister, but can we really confidently say that he was the best? Well, actually, as with all Prime Ministers, actually, the devil is in the detail. For example, his status as the first Prime Minister is generally agreed, but it was more complicated than that, because the role emerged as a combination of a number of factors rather than a new straightforward job title being created of Prime Minister for the man at the top. There were plenty of ministers before Robert Walpole, so what made him the first Prime Minister? We'll look at that here. And again, when we say that Walpole was the best Prime Minister, again, it's complicated. Many polls will instantly put Winston Churchill at the top of any list of best Prime Ministers. And this does raise the very question of what we want from a best Prime Minister. In Walpole's case, we don't necessarily mean that he's the best in terms of most morally good, nor was he arguably the most helpful for society. And he definitely wasn't the greatest leader in times of peril, like Winston Churchill can be claimed to be. Walpole's time in office was remarkably peaceful and prosperous. So when we say that he was the best Prime Minister, we mean it in the sense that if you put all the elements of the other Prime Ministers together and judge their ability to deal with the good and the bad of politics, we find that Walpole was certainly superlative. And every Prime Minister who has followed him, to a certain extent, basks in the shadow of a man who defined the template of Prime Minister. He held on to the job for an extraordinarily long amount of time, 21 years between the 3rd of April 1721 and the 11th of February 1742. Now compared to other Prime Ministers, it's almost a strangely long time. Winston Churchill, for example, was only in the job for around nine years. Whereas a famously long-lasting Prime Minister such as Margaret Thatcher was in the job for 11 years. So such a long period in office is now pretty much inconceivable. And if for no other reason, that's how we can say he was the best. Somehow he managed to juggle the politics of the day and stay in the job for two decades or more. If your ability to cling on to power 
is a sign of your excellence as a Prime Minister, well, he takes the number one spot. That goes hand in hand with another aspect of Walpole's bestness. At the time, he defended himself against the use of the term Prime Minister, which was seen as an insult. It conjured up an image of someone who grasped at power and was unable to work with his colleagues very well. So, the template that he set included many of the negative aspects of being Prime Minister. He did excel at clinging on to power, and he revelled in it. He was an expert at massaging the appropriate egos. He was a master of what in more recent years has been called spin. And he was a natural at batting away accusations of corruption. So, in short, Walpole was the best Prime Minister in many ways, but not always in the best ways. His tenure in setting up and consolidating how power worked in Britain, particularly the balance of power between the monarch and the government, stabilised the UK's political system in ways that have echoed down the generations. So that's quite a lengthy introduction to Robert Walpole, but the first question we generally like to ask here on Long History, when we pick a random Prime Minister out of the ether, is what was he like? Now, before I began to do the research into this episode, I did wonder why Robert Walpole, as the first Prime Minister, wasn't better known. Surely he's the UK's George Washington. However, the reason why he's not hero-worshipped is possibly in his personality. He was not necessarily an ultra-amazing superhero Prime Minister. Rather, we could say he was a controversy-avoiding moderate. He was supremely competent who would do all that was needed to keep the peace and keep taxes low. His flaws, it seems, were open for all to see, so they didn't become too much of a distraction. He knew how to profit from his position in a way that was not necessarily attractive, but it was relatable rather than reprehensible. I mean, who wouldn't want to work the system in their own favour? Money was always an issue for him. He'd like to spend big, and he often spent beyond his means. He married into wealth, however, and he had five children with his first wife, Catherine Shorter. She died in 1737 at the age of 55, and Walpole soon married his mistress, Maria Skerritt. He'd been openly living with her for a decade or more before his wife died, and even had an illegitimate daughter with her, although she was eventually illegitimated by the marriage. Walpole's second wife also died this time in 1739, leaving Walpole himself despondent. Right, so we've given a bit of an introduction to Walpole, but now we want to step back a bit and look at the historical background of the times. And in this way we can work out what were the issues that Walpole was dealing with at that time. And one of the keys to Walpole's success was his relationship with the royals. Walpole's life spanned a number of reigns, including those of Charles II, James II, William and Mary, Anne, George I and George II. His time as Prime Minister included the latter two monarchs. And the issue of who ruled Britain was key during those tumultuous years. And the crucial opportunity that Walpole grasped occurred when Queen Anne died in 1714 without heirs. It was a pivotal moment in the country's history being the definitive last gasp of the famous Stuart dynasty. The whole of the previous century had been fraught with disputes over who ruled Britain. The country had had a civil war and a so-called glorious revolution, 
and so this succession with the death of Queen Anne was another in that long line of controversy and disputes. Catholics were banned from the throne. So this led to the search for a Protestant successor to Anne. But it was very difficult to find anyone and eventually the throne was offered to a distant cousin from Hanover who became George I and was the first of four Georges, hence the name the Georgian era. So with George I, a new dynasty began. But something fundamental had happened here. The new king had been invited to rule by Parliament. This act establishing a fundamental relationship between Parliament and the king. Parliament had chosen the king and could, it followed, choose to remove him. So the king's rule could no longer be said to be a God-given right, and the balance of power tilted significantly away from the king and towards Parliament. And it's for this very reason why the highest person in Parliament, the Prime Minister, as it were, rose to prominence. The power of the king had waned, and this left a gap at, or at least near, the top to be filled. And this was where Walpole stepped in. The new king, George I, trusted Walpole's faction, the Whigs, more than the Tories, the opposition. He thought they were against his succession to the throne. Walpole chose his friends wisely, becoming a close associate of Caroline, the wife of George's son, the Prince of Wales, who was next in line to the throne. Walpole acted as something of a go-between between the two generations of George's king and heir. Walpole also, quite astutely, worked against legislation which limited the king's power. He knew where his bread was buttered. All this happened against an international background of the very messy war of the Spanish succession, a war over who should inherit the vast Spanish empire. This encompassed today's Netherlands, much of Italy, Central and South America and the Philippines. While continental Europe was fighting with itself, in Britain, the South Sea bubble ruined the lives of many British investors, including potential rivals of Walpole. When speculators had invested in a company with the monopoly British right to trade slaves in South America and the South Pacific, a trade which never actually emerged, Walpole managed to sell his shares at the height of the bubble, so he made a significant fortune from speculation which ruined many other people's lives. So this was perhaps typical of the cards falling in Walpole's favour. He was lucky with the royals and fortunate to mostly avoid the wars which left Europe exhausted. He was also lucky with his investments. They weakened others but benefited him. So however you see it, this was a man who knew how to play the system. In this way Walpole gained influence and power until his tenure as Prime Minister, which has only been defined after the event, began in April 1721, seven years after George I was crowned. So we're talking about kings and prime ministers here, but what was it like for an ordinary person in the country at the time? Well, one figure that we found was that a winter agricultural wage at the time was about 10 pence per day. That was in 1720, rising to 10.7 pence in 1740. 10 pence is about £4.84 in today's money, or $6.20 at today's US exchange rate. It's actually difficult to find reliable population figures at the time because there was no census. The population of England, Wales and Scotland in 1720 was 6.9 million, rising to 7.8 million in 1750. 
Ireland's population rose from 2.9 million in 1718 to 3.2 million in 1754. At this point in the country's history, the Industrial Revolution had still not begun, although throughout this century, the steam engines that would help to kick off this revolution were being developed. This was very much an us-and-them society in the 1800s, with the nobility at the top of the pile. The middle class was beginning to grow, including merchants and doctors, but most people were at the bottom, with most people living a hand-to-mouth existence. Few towns had a population of more than 10,000, with exceptions including, in 1750, London's enormous 675,000 people, Bristol's 45,000 people, and Birmingham's 24,000 people. A couple of famous cultural things happened during this time. Gulliver's Travels was published in 1726, and although it's read as a children's book today, it's very much a satire on those times, the Lilliputians and their petty disputes being Jonathan Swift's satire on the rulers of Britain at that time. Robinson Crusoe was published in 1719, and Daniel Defoe's other major works, A Journal of the Plague Year and Mole Flanders, were all published during Walpole's tenure as Prime Minister. To give a bit of an international perspective, we like to look at the US at the time, but of course, the country hadn't become independent yet. However, it was still growing and the city of Baltimore was founded during Walpole's tenure in 1729. The states were undergoing their earliest evolution, with the province of Georgia being founded in 1732. And the final question about the country... We like to look at the evolution of democracy in the UK, so we ask who could vote at this point. And this really was a formative moment for the country, with the parliaments of Scotland and England having merged in 1707, only 14 years before Walpole became Prime Minister. And who could vote was something of a moot point in those years. Walpole himself entered Parliament because he controlled a rotten borough this was one of those historic boroughs whose population had reduced over the years to the point where the seat in the Parliament had no or almost no voters. The landowner or local dignitary could therefore more or less choose who to send to Parliament. This was a system that was wide open to corruption, not least because only a minority of landowning men had any vote at all, and those votes were very easily bought. The party system in the meantime was only just emerging during those years, but it ultimately meant that the Whigs stayed in power for some 50 years around that time, the system being easy to manipulate, being based around factions rather than formal political parties. A serious opposition force had not yet been established which could lead to a change of government. So, in short, in this proto-democracy, very few people actually chose the leaders of the country. So that's the UK and its voting system at the time. Now we'll go back to Walpole and ask what his background was. Walpole was born in Norfolk in eastern England in 1676 to a well-established political family. It was another of the ways in which he set the template for future Prime Ministers by being from a notably wealthy, well-connected family and by attending the establishment's favourite educational institutions – Walpole was in fact the first of 20 Prime Ministers to attend Eton School and he was one of 14 Prime Ministers to go to Cambridge University. Walpole's acute political ability 
perhaps originates from the fact that he was the third son of 19 siblings, including Walpole himself. So it's not hard to imagine the political skills that are needed amongst so many siblings. Early on, he was apparently expected to enter the clergy, which was seen as something of a respectable fate for sons who were not due to inherit their father's wealth. However, that changed with the death of his older brothers. At the age of 25 in 1701, Walpole did in fact inherit all of his father's titles and his ability to represent a rotten borough in Parliament. The next question is how did Walpole become Prime Minister? So we've reached 1701, and over the two decades after, Walpole battled through various political storms, one significant one being that South Sea bubble, that frenzy of speculation in a South Sea's British slave trade that did not emerge. As we've said, Walpole managed to sell his shares at the height of the speculation, making a fortune. Many other lives were ruined, however, including those of his political peers and potential rivals. In the midst of it, however, Walpole did something canny. He proved himself to be a shrewd political operator, using his personal influence to shield certain of his colleagues from the worst of any corruption charges. And so it was when, in 1721, one of these colleagues resigned and another died, that Walpole was essentially left alone at the top as the most powerful man left in the government. On April the 3rd, 1721, he was granted the three titles that, together, would lead to him retrospectively being called the first Prime Minister. He was First Lord of the Treasury, Chancellor of the Exchequer and Leader of the House of Commons. It was that first title in particular, First Lord of the Treasury, that is, even today, the formal, perhaps a formal title of the Prime Minister. And it was this consolidation of these roles into one figure that led to Walpole being seen as the First Minister. The First Minister who was Prime. As we've stated though, the term Prime Minister was not the term used to describe him, at least not positively at that time. The next question we ask were what were Walpole's biggest achievements as Prime Minister? The first part of Walpole's premiership was served under George I. During this time he dealt with the aftermath of the South Sea bubble, defending both the legitimacy of the King and his own Whig grouping, which had been tested as a result of the crisis. George I, it seems, was rather a detached monarch. He was unable to speak English and chose to spend a great deal of time in Hanover. However, that led a gap for Walpole again. The king needed someone he could trust to act as his agent in Great Britain. During this time, there were rebels called the Jacobites who argued for someone from the Stuart dynasty on the throne. They failed in their numerous attempts at rebellion. And during all this, Walpole's power increased. The second part of Walpole's premiership began with a wobble. George I died, and when George II became king, there were initially some questions as to whether Walpole should remain as Prime Minister. Any elections on the matter at that time, however, were only there to legitimise a decision made ultimately by the king. This was where Walpole's friendship with George II's wife, Queen Charlotte, worked in his favour and with her help, Walpole held on to power. We can say, by this point, whichever definition you use of Prime Minister, perhaps you might not have called him Prime Minister up to that point, 
but from there, with his increasing power, it became more clear that he had definitively assumed a premier role in the government. How did Walpole manage to keep hold of enough popularity to remain in office so long? He had a policy of staying out of the European wars of the time. By avoiding such conflicts, he was able to lower taxes and to keep them low. Later attempts to increase taxes to discourage smuggling in 1736, however, made him unpopular in the country. When Queen Charlotte died in 1737, Walpole's influence began a more definitive decline. His attempt to stay out of wars failed when conflict with the Spanish increased in the Americas. So what led to Walpole leaving the post of Prime Minister? In the end, he even set up the typical template for a departure. It was tax, apparently, that did him in, as well as a habit of getting rid of people who disagreed with him. This is a great way to unite a lot of enemies against you. The corruption that was rife during his tenure was eventually weaponized against him personally, not least because he had enriched himself enormously during his time in power. Drawn-out conflicts in the Caribbean were not going well, leading to accusations that Walpole was not a good military leader. Eventually, there was a motion of no confidence, where ministers can vote on whether or not a person is still competent in their job. Walpole lost the vote and agreed to resign. By agreeing to resign, as much as anything, he helped to consolidate this proto-democracy that would continue to evolve long after his time in office. Perhaps we can say that that's what made him a prime minister rather than some type of dictator. So the last question is why should we remember Robert Walpole? Well, he was arguably the first, although there is some consensus on that point, and he was arguably the best, because he excelled in both the good aspects of the premiership, arguably he stayed out of wars, he maintained stability in the country, he worked to keep taxes low, but he also excelled at the bad elements of being a premier. He hoarded wealth, he maintained a status quo that benefited only a few, and he was more concerned with keeping a few people happy than improving the country. Like it or not, the case for him as the best Prime Minister ever would be stronger if he had a conspicuous victory. Saving the country in times of peril does help when creating lists of best Prime Ministers, and we can't even say there were any notable wins for the people, with perhaps one fundamental exception. By staying out of wars and keeping taxes low, by keeping his patrons and his peers happy enough to allow him to continue in power, he showed an acute ability to navigate this newly evolved role. When George I was uncomfortable in his role as king, Walpole took on the power that the king had ceded him in a way that did not lead to conflict. So in a way it solidified this new system. By creating the template of the prime minister and staying in the role so long to allow the system to bed in, and then by agreeing with other people's decision that it was time to go, he consolidated a new type of British government. Perhaps this is what gave the country a stability, which allowed it to develop over time to the benefit of the people. So it's interesting to see that Walpole was a relatable, a flawed man, who despite this, or perhaps even because of it, had a huge impact on the country's future. He seems to have been a real person, not some kind of deity, a good administrator. Walpole died at the age of 68, only three years after he left the office of Prime Minister. That's a brief introduction to Robert Walpole. 
As always, I'm well aware that this is just the briefest introduction and I'm hoping that it helps to prompt you to look for more information about the details here. Your opinions may vary. Some of the details here are probably wrong. There's just so many details here. But I hope that's at least a valiant attempt to give a bit of a summary about Robert Walpole. Thank you for listening. Don't forget we've got over 250 episodes available now on Long History. They'll be available on your podcast provider, but also at longhistory.net. That's long history, all one word. This was Random UK Prime Ministers of the Week. The first Prime Minister, Robert Walpole. The first and the best Prime Minister? Goodbye.